Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. So it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is from Lao Tse, If There Is To Be Peace. If there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. And if there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. People are curious what holds Unitarian Universalists together if we do not have a creed that we say together every Sunday. One of the things that holds this congregation together and guides us as we make our way into the future is our mission statement. We wrote it on the wall and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now is the time in our service when we plant our feet on the floor and breathe deeply together. We take this time to seek stillness. We take this time to speak to God as we understand God, or to listen to our inner wisdom, or just to follow our breath as it moves in and out of our bodies. We hold in our hearts during this silence those who are suffering those who are fearful, those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disaster. We ask for clarity, compassion, and peace. Let us enter the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, small child noises count as part of silence. This congregation has an auction once a year, and one of the items on offer in the auction is an, um, for the winner to suggest a sermon topic to the minister. And one of the winners of this year's sermon topic auction item said, Would you please preach about how I can talk to my Republican sister? And as it turned out, 
I'm going to talk about that because we all have family members who think differently from the way that we do. And this is a a series of suggestions and bits of information that may help. And my hope is that it will be as much help to those among us who are conservative, who have trouble talking to our crazy liberal friends, as to those of us who are liberal talking to our crazy conservative friends. Um, Not that many people can be crazy. Number one. Or else being crazy is really normal, which is another sermon. The news from science about changing the mind of a person through rational discourse is this. When someone feels something strongly, you can talk until you're blue in the face, you can make very cogent arguments, And nothing will change. Nothing. You can post the wittiest memes on Facebook. You can have the most gotcha information. You can email charts and you can email jokes and you can say whatever you want. What's going to change? That's right. You won't make a dent in them and they won't make a dent in you. So... Why not? It turns out that people's feelings about politics and probably most other issues about which we have beliefs are not rational. And we almost can't help how we believe. We almost can't help it. We do evolve as individuals, but uh, study after study shows that the very brain chemistry of liberals, conservatives, and moderates is different. The brains are wired differently. What you going to do? In a study at the University of Nebraska, scientists follow people's involuntary responses, including eye movements, in response to photographs which are pleasant or neutral or scary or disgusting. So you look at these photographs, you don't ever say anything. You just breathe and have your body respond and have your eyes look away or your head jerk or your mouth smile. And it turns out that conservatives react more strongly in an involuntary way, which they may not even be aware that they're doing, react more strongly to pictures which might create fear or disgust than liberals do. John Hibbing, who is the scientist at University of Nebraska, says conservatives are more attuned to fearful or negative stimuli. So the conservative focus on a tough military, on having guns available, on tough law enforcement, resistance to the stranger in your midst, may go with this underlying bias toward being threat-oriented. You see a threat, you react. John Jost, who was a professor at NYU, drew a lot of backlash from conservative politicians in 2003 when his studies began to find the same things, that conservatives have a greater need for certainty 
and less tolerance of ambiguity. People in Congress looked into their funding. But it turned out that so many of their peers reviewing this information were finding out the same thing and how it wasn't a bad thing to be threat-oriented. It's not a bad thing. You are safer if you're more attuned to threats and negativity. And so in terms of evolution, this was a boon to the human race to have at least half of its people, because we seem to be divided, surprisingly enough, half-half between the conservative threat-oriented and the more liberal new experience-oriented people. One group has their foot on the gas, and one group has their foot on the brake. And this, apparently, evolution finds to be the ideal balance. The correlations between the body's reactivity and the person's political orientation are so strong that a person's political ideology can be um, predicted without any words being exchanged at all just by watching their eye movements in response to these photographs. Um, Apparently, conservatives are more um, comfortable with inequality. That's just the way it is. Some people are not equal, you know, conservatives and liberals seem to mean different things by equality. Um, Conservatives are less, uh, not less bothered by people's suffering, but have different plans to alleviate people's suffering. It turns out that, in fact, there are um, different moral codes which are used by conservatives and liberals. There are, in these um, very scholarly studies, which I dug through a little bit this week but can't claim to understand completely, there are about five different moral codes that scientists who study these things um, describe. And one has to do with fairness. One has to do with harm and care. Um, One has to do with in-group and loyalty. One has to do with... uh, with institutions and authority, and there's another one that I could find if I would look down at my notes a lot more. And it turns out that liberals mostly use the fairness, compassion, harm, care uh, moral codes, and that conservatives access almost all five moral codes more equally. It also turns out that liberals who are open to new experiences are a little bit more neurotic as a group and conservatives are a little bit happier and more stable. (laughs) So obviously people do change. They do change their minds about things. We do change our minds about things. How does that happen? It's not that dialogue is impossible. Dialogue is not impossible. It's that you have to be very aware of the steps to change. Here they are, according to the FBI hostage negotiators. (laughs) It's these people's job to change somebody's mind. 
How do you do it? Number one, you listen. You go into the argument, the dialogue, knowing that it is very difficult for anybody's mind to change. They are emotionally invested in what they're believing. They are physiologically wired to believe this particular thing. And they think you're nuts. So the first thing to do, the first step to change is active listening. Active listening. This, my friends, is the first step and the one that takes the longest. This, you have to invest in this first step for a long, long time when you're having dialogue. And it's really hard. So the first step to active listening is to say things like, tell me more. Tell me what you like about this. Help me understand how you came to this position. Another, so those are the open-ended questions that you ask somebody when you're active listening. Questions like, what is the matter with you? Those do not, (laughs) do not help. Open-ended, emotionally neutral, interested questions. And I'm saying it's best if you can be actually interested instead of just pretending to be interested. Although pretending to be interested is the next best thing. If you're a good actor, perhaps you can pull it off. But people do feel it when you're actually interested. Help me understand this. Other ways of active listening, as you all know, because you've all taken active listening courses, um, are things like repeating the last phrase the person said. So when they say, we just need more guns, then you say, we need more guns. And that is a way of listening to people. Another way of listening to people is by naming the emotion that you hear. So they say, These people on welfare are just cheating the system and there's so much voter fraud and blah, 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 blah. You can just say, that sounds upsetting. You sound upset. Not in a judgment way, just in a neutral way. Does that make sense? You're naming the emotion. This works in uh, couples too, by the way, and families. Name the emotion, although it's really, really hard because you want to go, that's wrong. As the front of your bulletin says, just let me explain why I'm right. So, open-ended questions, naming their emotion, repeating the last phrase they said, and quiet. I remember talking to, um, I was on a trip around the world, paid for by the Unification Church, which we know as the Moonies. And I had some friends who were Moonies, and we would be on long bus rides, and we would be um, talking about our beliefs. I was curious about theirs. They were curious about mine, sort of. 
And um, so I used silence as a way of listening. So I would say things like, so Mr. Moon, when he, because I refused to call him Reverend Moon because he didn't go to seminary. So he was an electrical engineer. Mr. Moon, um, before he marries you, he takes away your sin, you said? How does he take away your sin? And my friend would say, well, he, you know, he has your photograph and he dabs uh, wine on the photograph. I would just let it hang there. And then I would say, he dabs wine on the photograph. And they would say, now that I say it out loud into the air, it sounds kind of stupid. You don't go, yeah. (laughs) Silence. If you're quiet long enough, if you just say, "Mm mm-hmm, I'm listening, I hear you, even the most passionate and committed person winds down after a while because you cannot have a one-sided argument. It takes two people to have a knockdown, drag out argument. And if you're quiet for long enough, pretty soon they'll get quiet too. Now, is this the point where you put your argument in there? Bam! No. You're skipping steps. Active listening is the first step. Then comes empathy. This is even harder than active listening because you have to actually understand where they're coming from. Empathy is a heart thing, not a head thing. You can't just understand where they're coming from. You have to, in your heart, feel where they're coming from. And this is hard because it makes you get in touch with those parts of yourself which also think maybe people are cheating the system. Maybe I should keep all the money that I make. Maybe I don't really want to help everybody else. They should help themselves. Maybe it is disrespectful to, to put people in a helping, being, I, uh, I don't I can't do it. So, um, <laughs> but if I could, that's what I would do. Be empathetic. And once you can actually understand what they're saying, Then comes the next step of rapport. Then they feel that you feel them. They go, yeah, that's why I feel that way. Yeah, you get it. And then you have rapport. And then after the rapport comes influence, where you could have a little influence on them. But the problem is after you've already empathized and you've already established rapport, then you're open to being influenced by them too. See what I'm saying? It doesn't just open up them. It opens up you both. So there's a situation of influence where now you can have somewhat of a conversation. And after that comes behavioral change. Whether it's, okay, I'm going to come out with my hands up. Or um, whether it's, yeah, I can see your point. Okay. It's very, very difficult to change someone's mind through rational 
dialogue. And I'm thinking that part of the difficulty is that we all have different facts that we're working with. Here's the problem. During the Reagan administration, a thing called the Fairness Doctrine was deregulated. It used to be, and some of y'all are old enough to remember, that a newspaper or a radio station would have to present both sides of an issue. They would have to call the pro person and the con person and put that in. Since Reagan, they don't have to do that anymore. 1987, it was uh, deregulated. 1988, Rush Limbaugh started his program because the radio didn't anymore have to present both sides. So then suddenly you got conservative radio and liberal radio, and guess which one the conservatives listened to? The conservative radio. Now we have conservative TV and liberal TV, and the facts are somewhat skewed. Um, Some people feel completely comfortable just making up assertions. I won't call them facts. Um, Actually, the first person to do this that I was aware of was, um, I I wasn't aware because I was there, I was aware because I learned about it in school, Um, was John F. Kennedy debating Richard Nixon. Kennedy won that debate hands down because he had all these statistics at his fingertips, which later he admitted that he had just made up. Now, poor old Richard Nixon hadn't learned to lie really well yet, or at least not on TV at that point. And so having facts that you've made up does not belong to one party or the other. But now we have red facts and blue facts. We have liberal facts and conservative facts. And the liberal TV stations don't cover the things that would be difficult for liberals to hear, and the conservatives don't cover the things that would be difficult for conservatives to hear. And so when we get into a dialogue with one another, we, we don't even, we've never even heard the facts that they talk about. And they've never even heard the facts that we've talked about. And, it, and just today I heard a long discussion about the difference between the deficit, which is down, and the debt, which is up. And it's very confusing for people, and some people are uh, brilliant and committed enough to listen to both, or retired enough, to listen to both sides. But not many of us are willing to do that or have the stomach for it. So we just like to hear things that affirm our point of view. And then we put them up on Facebook and we go, booyah, deal with that. The deficit is down. And they go, booyah, deal with this. The debt is up. And we go, what? So I guess what I want to say today is the way to dialogue with people who disagree with you passionately is to listen. Just listen. If they're in, their fa- if they're in your family, you just listen and you go, Thank you for talking to me. I love you. 
And they probably aren't going to say, but do you agree with me? They might. I have members in my family who have to say every time, of course, I, I love you, but we don't agree. Like, okay. I don't know why you have to feel like you say that every time, but all right. It's true. And I'm not asking you to stop your memes and your charts and your jokes and your Facebook posts and your emails. I'm not asking you to stop that because that stuff is fun. (laughs) And it makes you feel good, even though it's good in kind of a nasty way. But what I'm really saying is love. Listen and love, even though they may not be able to see how right you are. Will you please say the words with me by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Our benediction song is a call and response song, so I'll sing a line and you sing it after me. This uh, is a song about how even the most difficult person in your life might be one last spark we all need to light the whole world. You may be One last spark spark. we all need need. to light the whole world. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www. AustinUU.org